I could tell you, I have met several CEOs of big companies and politicians in high office, and you would be shocked and disappointed at the level of knowledge and grasp of the real world that these people have, and that is deeply unserious. Doomberg is a cartoon chicken, but it's also the number one finance publication on Substack. They write about big picture economic and policy analysis with a particular focus on energy. They're anonymous. You'll notice through this conversation that the person I'm talking to uses a voice modifier, so don't be freaked out about that. And the chicken stands in place of a real human face. They do that because they want to keep the focus on their analysis and not their personality. They come from a world of hard sciences and heavy industry, and they bring to their analysis an attitude that they call provocative, but not polarizing. Today, we talk about their advice for building a new media business and how it's about far more than just making good content. We talk about their opinion on world leaders and how they think the West is currently settled with some of the worst in history. And we touch on why it might be worth keeping a few guns in the basement. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and this is Doomberg. Well, hello, Doomberg. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. I've heard you say before that what you're doing with Doomberg is that you kind of are thinking for a living. Can you tell me what you mean by that? We define what Doomberg has been able to deliver to us as a very small team uh, as personal sovereignty. And personal sovereignty means you get to do what you love all day. And more importantly, you get to do only what you love all day. And then you're able to scratch out a living that more than meets your financial uh, requirements in doing so. And, and that's really our definition of wealthy. You know, um, the whole reason that people subscribe to Doomberg in the financial world is, is because of our ability to teach complex non-financial topics to financial professionals in a language that they can understand. And that's the real art of good writing is to do so with the least amount of words possible. Um, and so that's all part of our challenge. And it's super fun. And we have this uh, amazing mindset of continuous improvement around here, which is totally authentic. And, and you know, the proof of our continuous improvement is my inability to read our old work because it's too cringeworthy. <laughs> uh, but every time we publish a piece, I feel like it's the best one we've ever written or we wouldn't publish it. And so it's just a really a thrilling way to live. And um, I, I can't express how authentically happy I am to have discovered how successful Doomer could be. So you say you sort of cringe when you go back and read your old work. What does old mean in this context? Because Doomer hasn't been around that long. Yeah, our, our first publication was on May 3rd of 2021, a date which I remember well. And our first, you know, 25 or 30 pieces were written in the first person, even though we were a team. And that always makes me cringe um, a little bit. And also, you know, as a writer, you, you find yourself getting better and better. One thing that we have done, of course, is I have, we're privileged to have a fantastic editor and we spend more and more time on editing than we used to. So in fact, around piece 30 or 40, we implemented a rule that we will allow a full day for editing before publishing, um, no matter how time constrained the piece might be. Whereas in the early days, I would say we were more uh, checking for typos than full-blown editing. And I think you need a great editor who isn't you to truly get the best out of yourself as a writer. And uh, as hard as I try to write a piece that doesn't have any major changes, I've not yet succeeded. Were you a writer already? Uh, no. So I'm a trained scientist and um, I had a couple of decades in the corporate sector and I managed to lead some pretty large teams of, uh, you know, researchers in the energy and commodity sector. But the real differentiator for my career was my ability to explain scientific topics to our executive suite, which were predominantly people with finance background. And um, in the commodity and technology and energy sectors, 
convincing people without a scientific background whether they should write a check or not, because sometimes the answer is you should, and sometimes the answer is you shouldn't, is a pretty unique skill and one that I harnessed over time. And really, uh, when I look back on my career, that was the part of what I did that I really liked doing, whereas all the other stuff in my career, like, you know, firing people or ranking people or, you know, going through corporate training or traveling, all that stuff was what I would categorize as have to do. Whereas sitting down and writing a two-page white paper explaining why our CFO should support this capital project was deeply into the category of get to do. And so we designed a life, um, you know, we, we I left the corporate world and uh, co-founded a, a pretty bespoke consulting firm where we took those skills and um, <clears throat> and put them to good use. And more and more, we tried to isolate our lives to doing only what we get to do as opposed to what we have to do. Mm. And then when COVID hit, we lost a lot of business, like many small business owners, and we had to reinvent ourselves. And as luck would have it, we um, developed a, a line of consulting where we helped content creators run their businesses better. And then um, some of our top tier clients noticed our ability to create content for them. And like in a pinch, we could write a piece for them and it was good. And then they eventually encouraged us to start our own. And that's how Doomberg was born. So what kinds of content creators? Who were they? Uh, people who create content and sell it into Wall Street predominantly. So financial newsletter writers and so on. Is that a big industry? Do people make a lot of money doing that sort of stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And we got quite good at helping people make more money. So our, our strategy would be to sort of inherit somebody and maybe you strike a revenue share agreement based on how much you help them grow. And then we would transform their business, you know, multiple fold just by implementing really good business practices that we had learned in the corporate world. And then we took those very same uh, business practices and have executed Doomberg against that vision uh, with, mm. with, with with significant discipline. Were you like, you called yourself consultants, but were you like fancy ghostwriters? Is that a, a way of looking at it? Uh, no, like for the content creators, we literally just implemented business best practices around marketing, operations, technology, channel, and brand. And we we got to the point where we could analyze virtually any content creator business and figure out where their uh, sore spots were or their weaknesses were or what they should do to improve. Um, but as a consultant, you know, you're only as good as your client is willing to implement. Mm. And um, and ultimately, in a sort of very friendly argument with one of our clients, um, he <laughs> said, why don't you guys just do your own because you'll listen to 100% of your own advice. And, and it was one of those aha moments. Like not only would we listen to all of our advice, but we would own all of it. You know, it would be, mm. it would be ours. And, um, and so we did. And, and uh, Doomberg was conceived and we just started and we trusted in our ability to execute continuous improvement. And the pieces have gotten better over time and our ability to market Doomberg has improved. And we manage the business through what uh, we call the five pillars, which I'm happy to talk to you about. But those are the five things I just mentioned, which are, brand, channel, technology, uh, demand creation, and operations. And, and we have a strategic vision against all five and a, and a mindset of continuous improvement that overlays it. These are things that I imagine didn't come naturally to the creators that you are working with. And I can confirm, <laughs> do not come naturally to the great majority of writers who are publishing on Substack. How important do you think those things are um, alongside the actual... Um, work the creation of the content itself so i would say the creation of the content itself is uh table stakes and um, necessary but nowhere near sufficient mm -hmm. and there are many content creators who are perhaps a bit personally uh, repelled by the concept of having <laughs> to market their products and to them we would say um, that almost assuredly condemns your writing to the bin of great writing never read and it's a very crowded bin as you mentioned because great writing is just the first and obviously a very important step in making a living from content creating. 
but ultimately all businesses can be characterized through the five pillars. And the better you execute each of those five pillars, um, the more success you will have. And um, this is a, a methodology that we you know, developed and executed in our corporate lives and then used with great success for our consulting clients. I describe myself as a hardcore physical science. Don't ever really give the full background because of our uh, desire to stay anonymous, but it, it's one of the hard sciences. And I worked in the commodity energy sector for almost 20 years, mm. uh, doing pretty hardcore research and um, managed uh, hundreds and hundreds of PhDs at a time, uh, uh, you know, global operations um, around the world. And um, and so that is a minor component uh, to what differentiates Doomberg, but an important one given right. the arc of my career, as I described earlier. Right. Yeah. And the reason I ask is because that's not the typical background for someone who you might find um, making money from content or writing on the likes of Substack or, or YouTube or what, wherever else. But it seems that it might give you some kind of edge or an advantage because you're thinking of this not as here's my writing business. You're thinking about this as a system. And there, there are these other core components in the system that people might be you know, if they are some from more of a pure writing background, might be overlooking or under-optimizing on. Uh, does that feel like a reasonable assessment? Yeah, why don't we dive into one pillar as an answer? Um, the, one of the important ones, which is brand. Brand is, is, we define brand as the gut feeling you induce in your ideal clients when they interact with your product. And uh, brand is not what you say it is, it's what they say it is. I stole that quote from a great book called The Brand Gap. And um, we, before we started Doomberg, we sat down and we gave a hard think to who our ideal clients are. And we wrote character sketches about them, like literally created people. Um, and then our brand objective uh, is threefold. Well, our brand objective is simple. The gut feeling we wish to induce in our ideal clients is as follows. When they see a Doomberg email in their inbox, they think, ooh, I get to read that. That's a gut feeling. And if enough people say that, then you can say that you have a brand. But you're you're thinking about these things from a kind of 360 perspective because you don't come from a media background. I'd like partly because you don't come from a media background, partly because you come from a science background, partly because you come from a uh, finance background, partly because you come from a an analyst and and corporate background. I imagine is it or or do you think it's like do you think it's something else? Like why do not why do more writers not think like this? I think the more that a writer can view themselves as a business person it follows that it's more likely that they're going to be successful with the business side mm. of writing. And all businesses can be described and optimized and improved through the use of the five pillars. What do you say to people like me, for example, who as a writer, I felt sort of allergic to the idea of thinking about what I was doing as a business, you know, naively, <laughs> because partly that would wash away for me some of the romance of being a writer or the writing itself. Do you feel like it does affect any of the romance of the act or art of writing for you? So you have to decide which are you. Are you a writer who is romantically in love with your writing? <laughs> or are you a writer who really enjoys writing and you would like to make a living out of it? Because mm. they're two different things and they don't need to be in conflict with each other. Mm. But for sure, if you don't treat your writing like a business, then you should forego the expectation that writing beautifully will make you money. Mm -hmm. Writing beautifully will please you, and it might please the small number of people who find your work if you don't make any effort to create demand for it. But then you must accept that there will be others who don't write as beautifully as you, but execute the other five pillars of the business or four pillars beyond operations 
better than you and make more money. And so if that bothers you, then you should do something about it. Right. And I, I might posit as well for the sort of for the romance inclined that even if your concessions to running a business and using the business thinking to maximize the impact of your revenue and your writing, even if that feels unromantic to you, then the thing that you attain from doing all those things well is a kind of romantic life for a lot of people or like a, a an expression of a good life. For example, I imagine you're quite happy with the life you're living right now because you're following these principles. hundred percent. I mean, I, let's be very clear. Like another benefit of doing it this way is more people read your writing and, and lots <laughs> of people who are good writers. Like, and by the way, we're proud of our writing. It's mm. not like we're churning out, you know, commodity copyright, uh, you know, or, or, you know, copy edits and stuff like that. Like we, we're not, we don't outsource the writing. Um, we do it all in house. We, anguish over every word and every turn of phrase. And so, as you say, um, not only does it give you personal sovereignty, mm -hmm. um, because again, we get to write for a living now. And what a thrill. And the price we paid to get to write for a living and to have no scheduled meetings and to only do what we love all day is to execute things that we know how to do with discipline. I should tell people that I'm doing this interview with you over Zoom. And at the moment, I'm looking at an animated green chicken. <laughs> and Doomberg is anonymous. And you keep on mentioning we. Uh, I have a little bit of background on you. Uh, I know you, you won't reveal personally identifying details. But just quickly, who is we in this context? How many of you are there and um, how do you all work together? The predominant contributors to Doomberg are two people, um, myself as the head writer and and head of social media, and, and um, our editor is also the chief operating officer for the Doomberg sort of project. And we bring in uh, the help of a, a friend or two along the way when we need it, but it's it's a very, very small team. And this is pretty amazing. I mean, you're, you know, it sounds like two, sometimes, sometimes a third person's helping to run a media business this lean and this successful. Like the number one spot on the finance charts on Substack is... That has uh, that means you're doing extremely well. It's not a small thing. I'm wondering how much of your genius can we unlock for other people who are thinking about trying to do the same thing? And so you're talking about the marketing piece and you're talking about creating content for social media as if that's a um, a specific strategy, you're not just tweeting things into the wild. Yeah. What do you, how do you think about marketing uh, and how do you think about how social media interacts with marketing? And that will include this, this vision of the green chicken that I'm looking at right now. Let's talk about customer journey. You know, you're in the, the startup world and the VC world. And uh, how does a customer end up paying for Doomberg? That journey usually follows something like Doomberg makes an impression on them. So they either see the green chicken flash before their eyeballs on Twitter, or they hear us on a podcast. And that's an impression. And then we might tweet something or say something on a podcast that catches their attention and makes them engage. So from impression, you get engagement. And then if the engagement, you know, takes enough of their dopamine hits, uh, they might give us their email. And then um, we write our pieces uh, to a predetermined cutoff. So they will then get our previews and they might see three or four of our pieces as previews. And one of them might entice them to say, you know what, this is, this is interesting to me. I'm going to go ahead and pay. And then the next step of the customer journey is once they've paid, we publish more and more pieces and they grow to like us and they get the gut feeling of, ooh, I get to read that. And then they renew. Um, and so that is the customer journey. Um, the very beginning of that journey is an impression. And so the magic metric of Doomberg and the ultimate key to our success is Twitter impressions per day, which is a metric we measure every day because this is where everything begins. Yeah. 
Uh, we view um, precious on Twitter as sort of pater and our mechanism to sort of extract the gold nuggets from that pater to sort of the sluice box. And ultimately, when we clean the mats up at the end of the week, we have hopefully more subscribers than we started with. So do you treat Twitter as a purely as a marketing mechanism for you or a marketing tool for you? Or is it a fun place to hang out at all? Like, is it like, how do you think of it? All of the above. So it is a outlet for original content. So here's the pro- the problem with Substack. Not problem, but just an attribute. Of we're going we're gonna to cut this uh, yeah. cut that bit, bit out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Substack is a place people end up. It's not a place where they start. It's a destination, not an origination. And so as a Substack author, you have to have some other way to bring people to your Substack. So it'd be the same if you started your own website. So Substack is, is not like unique in this way. But you need to be on Reddit or on Instagram or on TikTok or on Facebook or on Twitter or somewhere where people are. We call it fishing in the pond. And the FinTwit community on Twitter, there's probably 1.2 to 1.3 million potential customers in FinTwit. And so um, to draw an audience from FinTwit to our Substack, we have to be worth following on Twitter. It's also a fun place to hang out. It's also a great resource for us to fact check to access uh, anonymous experts via direct message, to uh, send a preview link to a piece to somebody who is an expert in the field to make sure we've gotten everything correct. Because although we have a lot of expertise, sometimes we write about stuff that's a bit outside of our domain. It's a great place to meet friends. Um, it, it is a fascinating place to learn about news much faster than the traditional media, uh, which we think is a dying business. And I'm sure you agree. And so it's all of the above. Why do you think traditional media is a dying business? Um, they're too slow. The world is changing in the way in which it consumes uh, entertainment and in the way in which it educates itself. And the traditional institutions, uh, it's not just media, but all traditional institutions, are just far too slow and can't keep up. This is what happens when, you know, it's a classic definition of disruption. It's why occasionally a small company can put big companies out of business because they're quick, they're nimble. You said something very important, which is something that we've done by design, which is we're incredibly lean. Mm-hmm. Nobody on Doomberg takes a salary, which basically means after we're done paying you guys and paying Stripe, the rest is operating margin. Mm-hmm. And our traditional consulting business, which we still have, and we've mostly put on runoff, um, covers all of our fixed costs and and pays everybody on the team. And so um, this is like the ultimate gravy for us. And if we had you know tried to grow too quickly or you know uh, tried to outsource or do all of those things, well, then you're managing people and you're managing complexities and you're managing expense. And mm-hmm. if business doesn't go well, you have consequences beyond you. But some of these are. Uh big institutions, these bloated bureaucratic yeah. media institutions are still around. They're not dying. New York Times is not dying. How, how do you think, you know, what, how do you explain that given the belief that traditional media is going away? I don't know. I mean, I, I would say that there are very few reporters at the New York Times who wouldn't trade places with the top 5% of the Substack writers in the world, at least financially. We have a good sense of what big name reporters make at these uh, publications. And you would be surprised <laughs> at how how modest it is. Um, and, and, and it's an advertiser-based business. One of the things I love about Substack is it is a, it is a 100% subscriber-supported, you know, predominantly. That's certainly the model we've chosen. It's designed to implement that business model. Yeah. We say all the time, we are 100% subscriber-supported. We take no ads and accept no sponsorships. Nothing yeah. wrong with those business models per se, but that gives us the maximum degree of editorial freedom mm. and our community supports our work. And we have found that people will pay you because they like you more than mm. they need your writing. And so, yes, there will always be a business, but it's not growing. It's not flourishing. The distributed nature of entertainment and education is a true disruptor. It is a true wave. 
And sites like Substack and YouTube are really capitalizing on it. You mentioned there the importance of subscriptions supporting your editorial independence, your editorial integrity, which I 100% agree with. And ads create a different model and the incentives change. And both are fine in their own ways and as models. But do you have a view on the importance of editorial integrity, editorial independence in this new media environment that we find ourselves in, in a world where social media is so like uh, dominant in terms of how much mind space it monopolizes and in a world where things move so fast and in a world where people are less trusting of institutions? So for us, editorial integrity is 100% of the business. The reason why people get the gut feeling of, ooh, I get to read that, we hope, is because they know they are getting our authentically held beliefs politely and eloquently expressed in the context of, of our writing. And the moment we sell out, oh, we're just going to start writing about crypto because crypto's hot, then I think we lose the trust of our subscribers. You know, if you're going to be 100% subscriber supported, delighting your ideal clients is of the utmost importance. You know, if we were taking ads, then delighting our ideal clients would mean the person who is in charge of the ad budget at company A, B, and C is who we have to delight. And that's a completely different objective than a individual wealthy investor who happens to really enjoy the fact that they learn something every time they read Doomberg and they laugh at least once. And we speak to them in a way that um, is authentic and like they're an adult capable of hearing a, an opinion they might disagree with, then that that is our ideal customer. Beyond the decision you've made there, the model that you've specifically chosen for Doomberg, do you think that this is going to be a trend that grows or declines, this commitment to editorial uh, integrity and ed editorial independence? Well, I, I do think, obviously, we wouldn't be pursuing our strategy if we didn't think we were swimming with the current. Having swam against the current uh, at various times in our lives, uh, we can assure you that um, turning the other way and letting the current carrying you along is 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 a far better way to live, <laughs> if we're being totally honest. Um, but for us, at least, this is what we believe is the best thing for us to do because it's true to our values and we enjoy doing it. And again, our objective was never to make the most amount of money. It was to make more than enough money doing only what we love. Mm -hmm. You know, we like to say, especially to our clients or people that have reached out to us to try to help them get their Substack started or whatever content that they're creating, the barrier to entry is zero. The barrier to success is high. Um, and so as Vince Lombardi likes to say, you know, find out what the price is and pay it. In our view, the price of being a successful content creator is to think of yourself as a business owner, characterize your business through the five pillars, set a strategy plan for each of those five pillars, and then once a week, sit down with your team and say, what worked, what didn't, what can we do better? And after 52 weeks of that, uh, you might be in a pretty good shape to make a business go out of it. How do you protect your integrity when uh, a large part of the marketing you're doing is on this ad-driven platform, Twitter? Yeah, Twitter is a toxic hellhole. So that's very clear. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the other way I was going to put it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, there are parts about Twitter that I personally hate. There are times where we ponder internally, hey, we're big enough, because we are, that mm -hmm. we could just stop growing mm -hmm. and um, slowly ride the churn wave down for four or five years and, and enjoy it. That's, a, that's a, an active, ongoing conversation on the team. Um, because again, we are not here to... Um, just to suck every last dollar out of this experiment. Like we, how much fun this is, is a key component. However, we do have some hacks for getting the most out of Twitter while minimizing the toxicity. So the single, single most important rule is as follows. If you would never write about it, don't tweet about it. 
And if you're going to be tweeting about something, you'd better write about it eventually. And um, this is a really great rule because it allows us to avoid the sort of hot button issues of the day. You said that your goal is to always be provocative, but not quite polarizing. Uh, social media would definitely reward the polarizing parts. Um, provocative can be good as well. But why do you think that is the sweet spot? Well, not always provocative, but certainly provocative enough not to be boring. You know, if, if it's very hard to make somebody think in a different way if you're not provoking them to look at a subject from a unique angle. And um, that's what we mean by provocative. Um, it's more of a friendly interaction than the word connotation might invoke as you hear it. So in, in, a, in a way, what we mean by provoke is, oh, I, I never thought of it in that way, or that's an interesting take on it. Oh, I, that violates an assumption that I had, but the way in which it is presented and the data that supports it is interesting to me, and I'm going to go do some research and see whether or not the, the green chicken happens to have this one right. Mm -hmm. And so nobody wants boring, but polarizing is not a sustainable business in our view. Right. It's sort of very cheap, clicky, dopamine-leading, um, sort of a short-term way to um, to get somebody's attention. And also, it's just not a very fun way to live. Mm -hmm. Alex Jones had a big audience uh, at one point, but I mean, imagine being Alex Jones. But you, you do make really bold statements and kind of predictions, and sometimes you, you get it wrong, it'd be impossible to be, to be right all the time. I want to quote an example. You're talking about some of the pressures that are facing the economy and supply system around farming. And you said, we believe we are at the onset of a global famine of historic proportions. And again, Doomberg, it's in the name. So you're not selling sunny optimism here. You're sort of doing bracing realism and no compromise takes on kind of macroeconomic issues. But you will come out and make these bold statements. And you will, you seem to be prepared to be proven wrong uh, at some point, even though uh, I'm sure you also get it right a lot of the times. Um, what gives you that courage to go out there and make such bold pronouncements, knowing that there's um, going to be some penalty if it turns out that you're wrong? Uh, so first, we believe them in the moment when we're writing it. And um, since we wrote that piece, which I believe was titled Farmers on the Brink, um, we've seen the economy of Sri Lanka collapse because of a fertilizer crisis. We've seen food riots in Peru and in other developing economies. We've seen fertilizer prices skyrocket. You know, and we'll see what happens in Europe this winter. A lot of what we predicted has come to pass. Uh, but also at the same time, we consistently say we hope we're wrong. And we have said both in our writing and on podcast appearances that nothing would please us more than to come back on your show in a year and say we were alarmist in that piece. We view those types of pieces, which aren't always the way in which we write, to be warnings more than predictions. That if we don't get this correct and if we don't get serious about A, B, or C, we will find ourselves on the brink. And, and that's why we wrote the piece titled Farmers on the Brink. And it provoked a lot of response, some of which was critical of what we wrote because some farmers reached out and had a different view to which we responded, they are farmers in the West who can hedge their costs for this season. And we were mostly writing about farmers in the emerging economy, which was an interesting vantage point for them, because when they read our piece, they read it from the position of a U.S.-based farmer with all the government support and the financial wherewithal to hedge their inputs for a year and so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. Whereas we had interviewed farmers you know, in, in different countries to find out what was really going on in the emerging economy. And so, yeah, that's an example of being provocative without being polarizing, because we were 
writing that mostly as a warning. And we were the first to admit that we hope that we're wrong. Um, and we were sort of raising the flag. And and we have many people in government who read our stuff and reach out to us. And, um, and uh, to the extent that we can be a very small player in shaping opinion uh, for the betterment of human flourishing, then we're, we're happy to be chicken little. I mean, it's literally chicken little gets a terminal is the, is the, is the subtitle of Doomberg uh, when we first launched it. And so, yeah, it, it's on brand. This kind of pessimistic outlook, uh, you know, again, it's in the name, Doomberg. Is it designed that way? Do you take this approach? You talk about seriousness a lot. Do you take this approach because you think that actually sells or is it something else? No, it, it's it's a, and again, we're actually optimists in, in real life and in our writing, <laughs> but we are, there's a very important distinction. We are, defensive pessimist. So a defensive pessimist is almost a clinical term, but we dwell on worst case scenario risk and make plans to abate them so that uh, when inevitably it comes in better than you were fearing, you're in pretty good shape. And so this is why uh, in my real life, I'm a bit of a a prepper, uh, which is something we've written about and tweet about. Do you have guns in the basement? Uh, I am an owner of firearms, but that is not the predominant way by which I prep. I view my home as a factory and the product of my factory is the health and well-being of my wife and kids. And and I have a very high working capital in my factory because uh, the stores don't keep a high level of inventory. And so um, we eat what we store and we store what we eat. But I, I invest a lot in the inventory of the things needed to keep my factory humming because I don't trust the modern supply chain, which, again, we wrote a piece uh, all the way back at the beginning of Doomberg called We're About to Run Out of Some Stuff. And then we saw all the supply chain shenanigans that happened um, as a consequence of, of the COVID lockdowns. This all stems from our experience in industry. Like we know what it means when a major port in China shuts down because of COVID. And we know the second, third, and fourth order impacts of that and the supply chain impacts that that we ultimately saw. But we are defensive pessimists, but deep down we're optimists and we're, we're pro-human and we are very empathetic people. And so Doomberg is a bit tongue-in-cheek and a bit uh, of an inside joke to our most loyal readers. Do you trust the leaders? of some of the major economies, like let's say Europe is one, the United States is one. I'm not saying specific characters, specific people. What do you think of leadership in this in this age we're living in? I think, to step into the provocative, we've never had a weaker slate of leaders in the G7 in history. And we will never have a shortage of things to write about um, because of that. Why do, you think that why do you think that, though? Two reasons. One, it's very difficult for a normal person to go into politics. The incentives are against you. You have to be willing to run the gauntlet of personal destruction, of course, you know, because politics is a very dirty game. Mm -hmm. But moreover, I think the system is so corrupt that anybody with talent and ethics is going to avoid the sector. And um, it's more lucrative to go and start a Substack or to co-found a company like you did than it is to be a public servant, to expose yourself to the uh, blood sport that is politics and to be confronted with the ethical lapses of your peers every day and wondering what it is that you should do about it. Congress in the U.S., for example, is utterly corrupt. It's a bipartisan affair. And um, and so you get this sort of still bottoms, to borrow uh, a phrase from industry. You know, you distill up everybody who would be any good at it. And all you have left are the people that either have the uh, ethical compass that they're willing to plug their nose and steal from society or um, the incompetence. And and I again, I, this is one where we are actually just pessimistic. I think the the slate of Western leaders and the G7 in particular has never been weaker. And, and we are seeing that as, as the energy crisis and food crisis and supply chain crisis roll along. And, you know, we just had a big election in the U.S. and nothing meaningful has changed. 
Do you personally see any way out of that? Is this an irreversible trend? Are, are there bigger forces at work that are going to make it difficult for these institutions to reform in the ways that you think they need to reform? I think it's cyclical and like everything, one shouldn't draw tangent lines to sine waves. You know, this will snap back eventually when enough pain is felt and and political changes are demanded by the populace. And I, and I again, long-term optimist, short-term, perhaps a little pessimistic. But yeah, this will be solved. We do have great institutions and, and great technology and great education systems and serviceable healthcare systems. And most people want to create a better life for themselves and their families and understand the need for our institutions to be strong and to be rebuilt. And so, yeah, long-term, we're optimistic. Um, and this cycle will turn. Uh, unfortunately, it, the path function of how much pain we have to suffer before it turns is perhaps a bit frustrating. You've written a lot about thinking that leaders, these types of leaders you're describing, lack seriousness. And I'm just wondering what you mean by that. They have no tangible, direct experience in how things get made and the economy actually runs. But surely they surround themselves with people who, mm, who do. That's a, that's an assumption that is easily nullified. <laughs> how do you know, though? Uh, because we've transacted with and interacted with the government in our corporate lives, and we see how the sausage is made, and we see the power of the lobby groups in D.C. and the isolation that happens when somebody becomes very powerful. You know, I said all this in the corporate setting. You know, one of the reasons we left corporate America is the higher you go, the harder it is to get anybody to speak to you authentically because every conversation is exercised through the lens of how will this conversation impact my career? And so um, if you do get to the height of politics, you aren't surrounded with trusted leaders who are going to authentically tell you when you've got something wrong. Even the very best leaders inevitably fall susceptible to believing their own stuff and the sort of distillation of of yes people uh, in their inner circle makes it incredibly challenging to understand what's really going on. I could tell you, I have met several you know, CEOs of big companies and politicians of, in high office, and you would be shocked and disappointed at the level of knowledge and grasp of the real world that these people have. And that is deeply unserious. It's staggeringly unserious. I mean, I, it, it, it's it's just undeniable that like if, if, when we listen to John Kerry speak, I mean, this is that the guy has no idea how the economy actually works and and what the actual implementation of his policies would mean for the bottom 99% of, of the global population. Um, and so, yeah, we again, part of being provocative is that we believe that to be true and we're not afraid to write it. This seems like a wild card kind of question, I think, but to what extent do you think the internet, but I think in particular social media, might be contributing to this? Let's assume your your the theory of the case is correct. And I ask because I see on social media a lot of uh, side taking and a lot of people going after sort of entertaining topics of debate, not necessarily what are the actual important issues of the day. If you look at the trending tab on Twitter, Joe Rogan and people's opinions of Joe Rogan is disproportionately represented. At the same time, there's an energy crisis. There is war in Ukraine. There is, um, you know, massive inflation. And I wonder if you think that our increasing reliance on social media or social media's dominant role in the information ecosystem has any influence on this, quote unquote, lack of seriousness in the institutions and in, in the leadership? Uh, yeah, I think across multiple dimensions. The first is, again, if you are not careful, the algorithm can feed you only in exactly what you want to see and hear. And the algorithms are optimized for dopamine, which means necessarily that they are inevitably optimized uh, for anger. 
And that's why you see this sort of dissolution into sort of team sport name calling um, that is so prevalent on Twitter and, and to a lesser extent on Facebook. And so, yeah, that's a problem. But also, I think to become a successful politician and to get elected into these offices, you need to also sort of play to that um, and to leverage social media. Um, you know, everybody hates negative political ads, and yet they're literally the only types of ads we see anymore on television for all intents and purposes. Why? Because they work, right? And so uh, people like to get angry. This is something that social media has discovered. Well, maybe they don't like it, but it is a very powerful motivator for people to be angry. In order to rise up in politics, you need to to create a frenzy, to, to tear down your opponent. We've long ago stopped debating things on the merits and trying to collectively decide what the very best policies are. You know, politics is just another team sport where you pick a side and then you you fight to the death and, and it's, it's disillusioning. So given your deep knowledge of how social media is working and now how this particular business model you're executing on Substack works and how platforms like Substack and platforms like YouTube work, how do you think this evolves? How do you think the media economy is changing and is going to change. So we'll see how Twitter evolves in the coming weeks. And Lord knows for that platform, it's been <laughs> an, an interesting few months. And Twitter's survival is in doubt. Um, I would say that's a, probably a pretty fair assessment, um, given the nature of the disruption that culture is going through. That is a big threat to our business, of course. Uh, at the micro level, the fate of Twitter is something that is very important to us and something that we're watching carefully. But at the macro level, I do think this trend towards becoming comfortable with bite-sized increments and understanding noise from, you know, generated by the algorithm, I, I do think this is sort of irreversible. Again, back to swimming with the current uh, mindset, um, we decided to swim with the current. This is the way of the future. Um, I don't watch television anymore. All of my video consumption is done on YouTube, and I've learned an enormous amount from YouTube. Um, there's no appliance I can't fix by uh, <laughs> literally putting in the exact appliance model number and and finding somebody who fixed the problem I'm having and, and put it out on YouTube. It's really amazing. The value of the distributed nature of entertainment and education far exceeds the negative externalities and toxicities that we've talked about. Um, and so I, I do think at the macro level, this trend is going to continue and Substack has caught it at just the right time for the field of writing. How big do you think this lean media operation you're running can get? We have decided collectively that we shall do nothing but write great articles until at least next June. And we're not even going to think about expanding, bringing on others, growing, because we have achieved personal sovereignty. And if you can't enjoy your personal sovereignty, at least for a little while, then what was the point of achieving it? And so we've given little, very little thought to doing anything other than running our existing business in the very best way possible, writing as many great pieces as we can, staying lean, having nobody on the critical path of our success but the people that we know and trust, um, and just doing it and enjoying it. This temptation to grow, to do more, to get bigger, to expand can be a very dangerous one, and we have no need for it. Um, we, we have more than what we need. We have abundance. Uh, we have abundance in time. We have abundance in pleasure. And we have abundance financially, and that is a gift. Mm -hmm. When I'm on my deathbed, hopefully many decades away, I will look back at the past two years as the fondest time in my life. And I'm being 100% authentic with that. Um, this is the most thrilling, fun, rewarding, delightful thing we've ever had the privilege of doing. 
And um, if we can take a few years to savor it, that's fine by me. Well, that's awesome to hear. I'm tempted to leave it on that because it's such a nice note to close on. But I want to ask one sure. more wonky question that stems from that. You bet. It seems now, maybe it's just because of this biased position I'm sitting in, but it seems now that it's easier than in any time in human history to create a business like Doomberg, to have the kind of experience that you're having. And I wonder what kind of impact do you think that kind of development might have on the economy and on human society? Yeah, it's a great question. So platforms like Substack have removed many of the barriers to creating and succeeding in business that before platforms like Substack would have seemed insurmountable for people. Uh, we would not be writing a blog um, if the entire back office of creating, publishing, and managing email lists and interacting with the payment processor wasn't so easy and so straightforward and so manageable. Like building your own website, logins, security, credit card processing, all that stuff is very hard. With a platform like Substack or YouTube or pick your favorite, you have the back office infrastructure that you can leverage to create a business. And so it has never been easier to start. But like we say, the barrier to starting is, is zero, but the barrier to success is still very high. But you've removed all the things off of the critical path that many people found to be uh, impossible to overcome. It's still incumbent upon you to create a great business, to delight your clients, to develop a brand, to execute your operations, to create demand and so on. But it has never been easy. And I do think this is sort of like, um, again, to, to borrow a tired phrase, but sort of the gig economy for brains or the gig economy for writers or the gig, a gig economy for creators is real. It's a mega trend. We're in the early innings of it. And it is going to transform how people work. Um, and the next generation, I remember when one of my children was young and I asked them what they wanted to be. And it was my son. And he looked at me and he said, I want to be a YouTuber. And I was still in the corporate world. And I said, well, that's not a serious job. What do you mean? You can't be a YouTuber. You can't make money on YouTube. And here, you know, less than a decade later, if my son came to me and said, I want to be a content creator, I said, great. I know just the person who can help you. <laughs> it's, it's pretty, pretty remarkable, you know? And so I do think it is developing sort of the path to personal sovereignty is there, you know, find out what the price is and pay it. And you too can achieve personal sovereignty. You get up every morning and, and continuously improve. And, um, you know, with enough hard work, um, leveraging the platforms that are available to the world, um, it can be done uh, for sure. Well, I appreciate the work you're doing on Substack and uh, the leadership you're showing for other people to follow and the, the learnings you're passing on to others who might want to follow as well. So thank you very much for that. And thanks for joining me today on The Active Voice. Thank you so much. You can find Doomberg on Substack at doomberg.substack.com. Also go to the website to see all the show notes. That's read.substack.com. And I'll see you next week. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com, R-E-A-D.substack.com. Dot dot